I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iskov, and with me today is returning guest, Carrie Corrigan, uh, journalist working on a biography on Elaine May, associate editor at Bright Wall Dark Room. She's also written for Vanity Fair, Pitchfork, NPR. Uh, she was also on for a Sex and the City episode and uh, also made her thoughts known on War of the Roses. <laughs> but she's here today to talk about Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to kind of get your history with the show. When did you first start watching it? Uh, how has it aged for you over the years? 
Um, my history with the show. So my introduction is a lot like my introduction to Sex in the City, where my parents watched it like while it was on its run. And I would kind of like stand at the top of the stairs when I was supposed to be in bed and just like stand there and watch it like no context, um, <laughs> but really intrigued by it until somebody finally realized I was there. And it was like, go to bed, Carrie. Um, later, I remember um, it used to air. It used to air on Bravo mm-hmm. um, back when Bravo was like the classical music and West Wing channel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now it's uh, very much not, but yes, yeah. Um, so I watched it then, and I definitely remember, um, like, that's when I really got into it, probably like a couple years after it went off the air, maybe like late middle school, high school. Um, and then in college, um, I was a, polit- a double major in journalism and politics. Um, there was definitely a time that I thought I would like go into public policy and it was largely because of the West Wing. (laughs) I love that you're laughing about this now though. (laughs) So ridiculous. Um, I mean, I do, I did really love certain parts of politics, um, and certain aspects of like, what did you want to do? Did did you have an idea as to what? Sort of I area of politics you wanted, to work? wanted to um I wanted to work in public policy or or be a political journalist. It was kind of one of those things where I was like, there are so in college, I was like, there are so many things I want to do, so many careers sure. I want to have. Sure. Um I was an intern at the National MS Society and thought like, oh, I could really see myself being like on the hill, like some sort of lobbyist for healthcare but not like trying to not like pharmaceuticals like trying to get bills Wait, passed were you, for like diseases was it ms shit. because of bartlett no okay <laughs> that's one thing i'm not so like, like that's that very that. specific no my my grandma had ms okay. but um i'm sorry but another reason why i like understood parts of the show sure um but Come senior year, I was really like, no, that's not going to happen for me. And in the in the throes of senioritis, I remember not studying for some of my exams, but binging the the West Wing instead. (laughs) I would write I would write papers that were like clearly taking plot points. (laughs) It was like I had to write hypotheticals and would like basically write stuff that I learned from the West Wing. I don't know if Sorkin would be happy or sad at this admission, but I think it's kind of amazing <laughs> nonetheless. Just just cribbing from the West Wing for your college papers is pretty fantastic. I mean, I got A's on them, so like, sure, it worked. Thank you, Sor- thank you, Sorkin, for like, <laughs> you know, writing sure. a political show that actually, yeah, the like it was based in truth at least. Mm-hmm. So, so thank here's, you for that. Here's my question to you, because I do feel as though. Uh, the West Wing now is seen through a bunch of different lenses, obviously, but specifically in a post-Trump American political landscape, a lot of people feel like this show might have had a detrimental effect on the way that people see politics. I'm wondering, since you almost shackled yourself and your career to its political aspirations, I'm curious as to sort of how you feel about, because I'm assuming you're a little bit a little bit more clear-headed now, post-collegiate, seeing the world through a different lens. How does the show hold up for you now? Well, see, that's the thing. I The like question of how does it hold up for me now, I mean, 
I have to be honest, I haven't, I, I haven't watched it as much as I had because throughout the whole Trump administration, I think because it is such an idealistic, this is the way that politics could and should work, um, at least the American government, um, you know, I think because of that idealism and um, idealism, but with a hint of realism, a hint of like, you know, no, it's not like this, mm-hmm. but it could be. Um I think it was very difficult for me to watch um, during the Trump administration. Uh, And I don't know how it's held up for me now is I definitely, I agree. I think it's probably, you know, it's probably one of those things that informed this whole idea of like Obama's America, we're healed, like when clearly we are not, like the world is not the West Wing. Yeah, it's, you know, I I watched it during um, the election in 2020 uh, for kind of the the bomb effect that a lot of people needed, you know, during what was going on, the the hope that, you know, that that Trump would lose and and what have you. Um, It is interesting to watch it now and sort of think about the idealism, but also there's a lot of failures on this show. Like, I think people do have a slight misconception of... Um, how sort of wide-eyed it is. Because I do feel like a lot of these characters fail a lot. A lot of these bills don't go through. A lot of things they're fighting for don't happen. But it does feel like the overall theme of the show is fight the good fight, right? Take the big swings and and try. You know what I mean? There's there's no harm in trying, I guess, which might not be the most active or what have you. But do you feel that way? Do you feel like the show is necessarily completely idealistic or does it have some sense of realism? No, I think, I think that's a good point. I think it does have sense of realism and that it fails. I think the idealism is, and maybe it's, maybe we're all just really jaded and about the way politicians work now, where I think the idealism is, is in the idea that there are politicians, there are people in, you know, the federal government who are willing to take these big swings, who are willing to stand up for what they believe in rather than, you know, compromise into oblivion. Um, I think that's the idealism where I I don't want to say that it doesn't exist now. I think we're just, I think a lot of people, um, you know, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Sometimes we don't know how, our representatives actually make deals and actually work. Are they taking these big swings and failing or, or not? I think it's easier to kind of believe that they're not. Well, yeah. Cause we only see the end result. It feels like, right. Like exactly. we're not actually seeing the, the, the machinations of power. And, and you know, the other thing that hit me watching this specific episode, um, because thematically this episode is about um, the middle ground, right. The idea of, of either, Leo pushing the president or the president pushing Leo in the direction of, of moderation and rather than, you know, showing the, the, the spine to, you know, the, the convictions of what he wants to really do. Um, the irony of that to me is that Aaron Sorkin seems like a moderate. Aaron Sorkin doesn't seem like a person who's, you know, when, when the, the Bernies of the world and what have you started to kind of manifest, <clears throat> excuse me, during the 2016 election, 
Aaron Sorkin was the first one to be like, hey, let's all relax here and let's let's aim for the center. So I, I don't necessarily know that that he should be the ambassador of uh, of taking big swings politically. But what are your thoughts on that? I think Aaron Sorkin has big like neoliberal energy, neoliberal <laughs> yeah. boomer energy. He's like the yes. kind of guy who was he was probably. You know, he probably was like one of those like Bernie dudes in this. He's like every boomer, not every boomer, but several boomers who were like, yeah, who were not quite radicals in the 70s, but like very progressive. And then, of course, go through yuppie culture and come out on the other side of like, like post Clinton America, where that's their idea of liberal yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I mean he did make Trial of the Chicago Seven. Do you know what I mean? Like he did make this movie that is, to your point, sort of this lightning rod of of radicalism or however you want to kind of you know, label it. Um, but he's been churned through the eighties and nineties and coming on the other side as this guy who's like, let's not shake things up too much. Let's not do anything too crazy. It's kind of amazing. But uh, I want to give just a synopsis of this episode real quick. Uh, Rumors percolate about a scathing memo that outlines the weaknesses of President Bartlett's administration for his political rivals uh, that grip the White House until CJ learns that it came from one of the trusted staff. Now in someone else's possession, CJ tracks it down to one reporter and tries to dissuade him from publishing it. Meanwhile, Sam and Toby meet with opposing military officers and congressmen to discuss amending the current don't ask, don't tell policy towards gays in the armed forces. When two members of the Federal Election Commission Resign, Josh sees opportunity and moves fast to meet with contentious senator staffers to suggest that the president appoint two campaign finance reformers as replacements instead of those wanted by the Senate leadership. And Leo not only has trouble with the White House faulty email system, he confronts the president and issues a challenge that could define or destroy his administration. Let Bartlett be Bartlett aired on April 26th, 2000. It was a story by Peter Parnell and Patrick Cadell, teleplay by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Laura Innes, and just shy of 14 minutes million viewers tuned into the episode. Um, I want to talk for a second about Laura Innes, who uh, people might know as Carrie Weaver from ER. She was on that show for, honestly, like 12 or 13 seasons, something insane like that. Um, she directed this episode incredibly well. I thought this episode was the, the slow kind of convergence of, of close-ups, so that by the end of that scene, it's really just like on their faces. Um, it's, it's really great. She also directed some, uh, great episodes of ER, including the one where Carter and Lucy got stabbed in, uh, season six. Um, a, you know, relatively ominous episode. Um, I want to sort of, uh, I guess I want to kind of come at this from, uh, the different storylines, but I think what makes the most sense is to sort of just break it up by plot lines, if you're okay with that. Um, so let's talk about the, the memo, um, for a second. So, Got to get your thoughts on Mandy. Um, what are your What are your feelings on Mandy, Carrie? Um, Mandy was only one season, right? Correct. And then she like just she deserved to like disappear. Completely disappears. Completely disappears. She deserved it. Yeah. It's just like wow. <laughs> okay, okay. Wasn't a fan. Still, I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. I just, I kind of. I don't know. Maybe it was like she wasn't fully fleshed out or what it was, but there was just, she never seems to gel in the core group of staffers that like this to me, almost this episode rewatching it. I was like, Oh, it seems like it's setting her up to leave, but then like she leaves without 
any explanation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so I want to come at this uh, from two different angles. The, the first being, this is sort of her her swan song, if you will, which is that her character is sort of shown. I don't want to say shown the door because, to your point, she just kind of disappears. But um, this is a major failure, right? And this is sort of man, the crux of Bandy's character in the sense that she uh, brazenly gives all the sort of, you know, Cliff's notes to destroying the Bartlett administration to the rival um, that she then uh, is essentially fired by in the pilot and then taken back in by this administration. Um, Danny Kincannon has a really salient point that he makes to CJ, which is the first thing you should have done when you rehired this person is say, what are we doing wrong? Tell us all of our faults. But they don't want to hear the faults because they know that they can't do anything about the faults because Bartlett is so, and Leo are so sort of entrenched in their moderation battle between the two of them. Um, so it's not that Mandy's wrong to write the memo. She should have written the memo. The, the administration is wrong for not seeking it out. That being said, Mandy and CJ have a have a fair amount of scenes together, and and this leads me to I, I need to hear your thoughts on Aaron Sorkin's female characters, and the choices that he makes in terms of uh, their strengths and weaknesses, I guess, and and the way that he sort of writes them, because it does feel a little bit like when they meet, they're they're two very different female characters. CJ is 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 much more. Uh, developed and dynamic and layered. Mandy is not. Mandy scenes with CJ in this episode feel like a like a teenager that's being scolded. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on on th- their dynamics, but also on on the way that Aaron writes female characters? Um, I mean, I think in this dynamic, it's it is really obvious that when he, I, I think it's. I think Aaron Sorkin has an issue writing women when he's not um, invested in them as people. Sure, sure. So, like, it's it's uneven to me. Like, I think I think of C.J. Craig, and I think that is such an incredibly written role. It's layered. It's dynamic. It's complex. Like, he cares about this person as a character doesn't and to me it's kind of like it doesn't really matter that she's a woman in a way right um with mandy there's something a little like stereotypical about her there is something flat and you know she just doesn't give she's not given a lot of room to grow which like obviously makes sense because they're clearly going to write her off (laughs) But it seems like they gave, it seems kind of like they get, he gave up on her or like the show's writers, like they gave up on her pretty early. Um, no, I agree. I agree. Which is I, why, yeah, you get this scene. No, for sure. It's, it's, I agree on, on all counts that, that Mandy was pretty clearly, um, they didn't enjoy writing her. So she became sort of a foil and she became sort of this, um, almost a villain within the administration, quite honestly. This leads to my other question, and I'm curious because I do feel like romance is a tricky thing for Aaron to write. Um, I, I feel as though, 
um, <clears throat> he writes men and women in romantic entanglements kind of very similarly all the time, right? Which is this yeah. sort of, it's a, it's, it's a similar kind of chase dynamic, if you will, which is that he's doesn't really interest. He's not really interested in writing people when they're together. He wants to write them. He just wants cat and mouse. That's circling. All yeah, yeah. Always yeah. circling around each other. And also yeah. like every when I'm, I'm racking through my brain, trying to think of like, more examples but like it seems like they're always like, deeply questionable hr relationships <laughs> yes 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 unprofessional um, relationships super unprofessional relationships <laughs> in the workplace usually yeah. between um an employee and her boss mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. i'm trying to yeah like i just i keep thinking about the newsroom which is, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's problematic. That, it's problematic, but that um, the main relationship in that with Will and Mackenzie is like very emblematic of the relationship with like, I, I guess what you could say with like, with Josh and Donna, uh, kind of. It, it, only in the sense that like when he writes women in, in relationships with men, they're kind of like, um, I feel like he has the habit of writing women who know the man better than he knows himself and like kind of point to the ways that they're, that this guy is an idiot, both an idiot, but also like, you're so brilliant. What are you do? Why are you acting like an idiot? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I, I'm having like, a really hard time. Um, no, it's articulating I, it. I, I it, it, that is very much it. It's it's this. It's there's almost a, a slight hint of manic pixie dream girlness to it, in the yes. sense of women that are looking to fix brilliant men. There, there's sort of no more explicit way of seeing Aaron Sorkin's psyche than Studio Sixty. That that show feels like it's just him working through his, I don't know, issues. But I but I do think that that. In general, there is this uh, banter. He loves banter between men and women. He loves this sort of, you know, back and forth between them. Um, You know, you're obviously a person who watches a fair amount of classic cinema or at the very least sort of 60s, 70s, what have you. And I feel like that dynamic is very prevalent back in the past and yeah. i think he has a reverence for a very kind of specific dynamic between men and women and i don't necessarily know that he's able to see it through the lens of modernity like that he's able to kind of i, I don't know find a level playing field for men and women it feels like he he needs to have that power dynamic i mean do you do you, do you see that in his work no, I definitely do. And I think in some ways it's, you know, I do love, in some ways I love that he has that reverence for kind of like classic TV, classic cinema, where it is sure. this like chatty back and forth. It's very talk, like all of his shows are very talky. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, the banter between characters, but when it comes to relationships between men and women, I definitely agree. I think it's, it's, it gets stale after a while and yep. it, it starts to be seen less as an homage or, you know, sort of like, this is my reference point um, updated for now. And 
it just, it, it starts to seem more like a crutch as yeah. you go through his work. It's, it does make me wonder sort of, I was talking with um, one of my guests about sort of, you know, what is, what does the future look like for Aaron Sorkin? Clearly he wants to, he's now directing, but also just this, um, there's a, there's a real sort of, uh, he's shackled himself to, to true stories, to, to people's stories, right? As opposed to um, fictionalizing things and giving us sort of, you know, fiction. Um which I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that evolves because I have to say that if you were to ask people about their favorite characters of Aaron Sorkin's, I would imagine it would be mostly his West Wing characters. Um, it would not be, you know, Zuckerberg. It would not be, you know, um, you know, Billy Bean as great as they might very well be because they exist. Um, so I, I just, I'm, I'm curious to see sort of, you know, obviously I'm curious to see what he does with Lucy and Desi. I'm, I'm curious to see what this all looks like. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I do kind of long for him to, to, to fictionalize again and to kind of give us, you know, whole new characters. Yeah. I mean, as you were saying that it's, it's, I thought of, you know, Molly's game, even though it's not fictionalized, that seems to be an outlier in the sense that it's the one time, I think at least the one time where he writes, um, a woman without relationships, without like a woman as the protagonist as the central protagonist um and and without relying on that crutch of like banter and totally it's that's why i'm like i want to see him do more molly's games um whether or not they're fictionalized um because i i don't know i there are definitely faults with that movie but i think that's one case where i'm like this is a nice change of pace in a way for Aaron Sorkin. And it's a nice dynamic, I guess. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I I I do want to see him do something more like the West Wing again, though, with completely new characters. Totally. You know, the, the, the Molly's game thing felt in its own way, I don't want to say reactionary, but he did get sort of, you know, beaten up a little bit when it came to female characters and when it came to, I mean, the, the lack of them in the social network, admittedly that's, that's more indicative of unfortunately the universe that that show takes, that movie takes place in. But I, but I do think that, um, that it worked in the sense that he, he clearly sort of set out for himself to do this and he did it well. Um, we, we shall see how he writes, um, uh, Lucy. Uh, it'll be interesting. <laughs> um, I'm like, I, I, I'm, yeah, I can't help but make a face because I'm like, yeah. it could go either way. It could be really good yes. or it could be really bad. Yeah, I, that's a real high wire act, and and I, I I don't I don't know what Nicole Kidman's you know uh, Lucy looks like. I, I mean, it, it's it's all just it's all a big question mark. Uh, Javier yeah. Bardem playing Desi Arnaz is is something that I just don't know what that is. Um, so we'll just see, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be something. Um, in terms of uh, uh, let Bartlett be Bartlett, what I think is interesting and atypical about this episode is that um, <clears throat> the, the two sort of marching orders that are given to two storylines, which is Josh going to with the FEC and Sam and Toby with, uh, with the don't ask, don't tell um, are, are um, fruitless. 
they they know that it's never that both of these storylines they know they're not going to actually be able to do anything um which is atypical for the west wing generally speaking people go into these storylines thinking i can i can change things i can do something um so it's interesting to have sort of the, to have our main characters being sent on on a wild goose chase that's that's going to accomplish nothing, um, which you don't realize until about two thirds of the way through the episode, where you're just like, oh right, they they can't actually do anything because Bartlett isn't going to have their back and isn't going to sort of really be there for this. Um, you know, I, I want to sort of, I'll take them sort of individually, but the, the don't ask, don't tell storyline is an interesting storyline insofar as um, we're obviously on Sam's side. We obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I like to think that you're uh, for it. Um, but it's, it is just very interesting to see how, um, I mean, this episode comes out in, in, in obviously in early 2000, but it, did, when they, ever, I don't know, I can't believe anyone ever thought "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" was a good policy. That that was a good idea. The idea of us just turning a blind eye, like turning a blind eye, never works. I just, it's crazy to me. Yeah, no, I can't. I also can't believe people thought it was a good idea. But I also am stunned that this episode came out like ten years before it was revealed. Yeah, it's insane. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> In some ways, it's kind of, I don't know, some ways I think it's a, a way that, I, some ways I think, oh, wow, it was the pressure of Aaron's work and to be like, we need to yeah. end this policy. It's a bad policy. It doesn't make any sense. But how is this ever a good policy? But in this, at the same time, I guess I don't have enough information or I haven't retained enough information, I should say. Um, or knowledge of what the general like consensus at that time was about don't ask, don't tell if, if it was still like, at least like public polling wise, if it was still like, no, we should absolutely keep doing this. Like, I don't know what the, the climate was like. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I just, I guess the question I sort of was asking as, as I was watching these scenes was, did it have sort of a detrimental effect on enlistment? Did it have an effect on on people that were actually joining the military? Um, were they were they concerned about those numbers? I really don't know enough about it. All I know is that uh, it's a, it's a crazy policy, and seeing these characters try to defend the policy, um, especially you know once Fitz Wallace enters the equation, and you know as as you know an admiral, a, a chairman of the chief of staff, uh, you know an obvious black man saying you know. 50 years ago, we would have been having the same conversation about blacks in the military. Um, you know, he makes a really good argument. Then he leaves the room and says to Sam, I mean, you're not going to get anywhere with this. <laughs> like, I don't know why yeah. you're having this conversation. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's fascinating to me. The idea that, I mean, we're having the, we're having the conversation or we're having the conversation about uh, transgender people in, in the military. Um, the, the idea that, that anyone would question anyone wanting to fight for this country is just shocking to me. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like at the end of the day, like these people are willing to die. Yeah. Like yeah, wh- who do you care? What yeah. like, who do you yeah. care what they are, yeah. who they are? Yeah. Like yeah. it's crazy. It's how crazy. many people <laughs> these days are you going like without a draft? How many more people do you think are going to say, yes, absolutely. I would like to sign up 
for voluntary service in the army, the military, like, yeah, it's it's it is. I mean, obviously, it's a political hot potato. It's a thing that, for whatever reason, um, you know, I'm assuming certain Republicans feel as though uh, it's it's just an an easy thing to to smack Democrats with, um, and we just keep going around and around in circles and finding new minorities with which to uh, to complain about being in the military. I, it's it's baffling to me. Um, and 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 it's it's a it's a great storyline in the sense of just showing that we've made some progress, but like we're still just arguing about different groups of people. Yeah, I think it's also like, I think it's like a fe- like a Republican like I don't want to say like fetish like fetish for the military, but like the Republicans yeah. love the army. The Republicans <laughs> like love being like here was. I like looking at like serving as this like club in a way, like an exclusive sort of thing that it seems to me kind of like, yes, they use it as a way to smack Democrats, but they also use it as a way of like, what does it say about me if I belonged to the same club Mm -hmm. that a gay man belongs to? Like there's, they want to keep it exclusive Mm -hmm. in a way, but it's, it's, one of those things where I'm like, you are cutting off. What is it? You're cutting, cutting off your nose, your nose to, spite to spite your face. face. Yep. Yep. Like, yeah, like it's just ridiculous to me. It's you know, it's 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 funny you say that because I mean, needless to say, the Republican Party right now is lost uh, and is 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 struggling for some sense of definition or or at the very least essentially like a raptor throwing itself at, at a electrified fence to see how far they can push things. Um, we're now seeing them try to vilify the military within the Trump administration and like all these things with Millie. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to try to find them parse out these stupid little arguments to try to retain whatever uh, definition they have as a party. I, it, it, it is it is very strange. It, it, it does bring us to the next the next storyline in this episode, which is equally depressing, uh, which is the FEC. <laughs> so we have the, the the Federal Election Commission has two people resign uh, at the top of the episode, and Bartlett sees this as an opportunity to be able to you know change the way that elections work in this country, uh, and. Um, <clears throat> Generally speaking, what happens is a leader from one party and a leader from the other party picks people and the status quo is perpetuated uh, forever. Um, But Bartlett wants to change that, or at least it seems like he does. And then Leo kind of talks him off the fence and then they send Josh to go talk with the various leadership's uh, top guys to discuss campaign finance reform. Um, How's that going in this country, Carrie? How would you say... uh, (laughs) Oh my God. It's funny because I remember on the, I remember the night of the election, 2016. Sure. Like I'm at this little get together. I don't want to call it a party. It was like a small hang, small gathering, intimate venue. And like most of us are freaking out and crying and like, we're like, we're so fucked. We're so fucked. And I kept like I kept talking about like different. I'm fully drunk and like pulling out different little tidbits of like (laughs) facts that I and like policies that I have retained in the back of my brain. Um, And then I have one friend who's saying, 
well, we just need to reform can it's we just need to reform the federal campaign can, like campaign financing. It's all about campaign funds. It's all about campaign funds. Like completely calm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> uh, you know, spoiler, it's not going well. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's you know, in 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 99 it was interest I mean, there's any number of sort of real seismic Unfortunate things that have happened. Obviously, the the um, Citizens United uh, was was a, a major body blow to this notion of trying to separate uh, money from politics, or at least special interest money. Um, there's something so uh, quaint and endearing about the conversation that Josh has with these senators, where he's just like, you know, uh, we can't, you know, money is not free speech. I mean, all, all the things that we've been saying. <laughs> 20 something years uh and it's just it is pretty soul deadening to watch it and then at the end to have bartlett be like yeah fuck it we're gonna do it and leo's like yeah we're gonna do it and then we're, we're like you're not gonna do it you're not gonna do it <laughs> no. um but it's but i mean it really does get to the heart of you know your your friend isn't wrong um special interest money continues to to you know warp the, the the political system here and and as long as corporations can continue to sort of uh be people <laughs> be people yeah be people that's yeah it's basically it it's, as long as we keep thinking that corporations are people we're kind of fucked yeah <laughs> it's kind like. of, that's, yeah uh yeah it's unfortunate uh it's it's really um it is a fascinating storyline um, because we are sort of seeing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, now we're talking, I mean, there's the whole thing that happened recently with the gerrymandering and the various sort of like, you know, um, things that the Supreme Court is doing in terms of, I guess allowing people to continue to suppress votes and and things along those lines. So it's 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 all kind of a mess. Um, but uh, this episode leaves you with a sense of possibility. So let's just we'll run with that. Let's 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 run with that for a second uh, because I I do sort of want to um, to break down kind of the heart of this episode. Uh, it's the title of this episode. Um, it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, sort of the beating heart of the show, which is the relationship between Bartlett and Leo. Um, and uh, at the end of this episode, we have sort of a very kind of a contentious scene between these two men um, where 
Leo tells Bartlett that the memo that Mandy wrote says that Leo always sort of pushes Bartlett to uh, safe ground. And then Leo kind of says, no, 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 you push me there. Um, And they have sort of this back and forth. um, And Bartlett says, so I want to kind of talk about this final sort of two minutes because uh, it is a testament to this show (laughs) that every time that sort of pulsing score starts to rise in the background and Bartlett says, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And I, I get goosebumps just saying it like it, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, and, and the staff all saying that they serve with the pleasure of the president. Like it makes me emotional. It shouldn't like my brain no. is telling me like, what are you, why are you feeling this way? This is an impossibility. Like, look at this country and yet it works. What about you? What do you think? About I it? love the romanticize the romanticization of yeah. the federal government of right? the president's office. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I can only laugh. I like, I can laugh about it or I do laugh about it because I, I think at this point, like that, that, has become a Sorkin trope in a way um, that I could easily see the last two minutes being like an SNL sketch or something. (laughs) Um, But, but only, but that's the thing. Like you can only make a satire of something if it's been proven to have some sort of like, or a good satire of something is like, you know, if it's been proven to have some sort of cultural context or it's, like stands on its own. And I, I know I definitely get goosebumps. I definitely, you know, I love the idea that I think going back to, to what I, um, <clears throat> sorry, I think going back to what I said at the beginning that I, I think it is the wide eyed idealism of the show in the sense that I love that it sort of says this is what politics could be. Maybe not be what it is, but this is what it should, like, why can't it be like this? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, it's something to strive for. And I think that that's why, you know, fans like uh, yourself and me uh, that love the show, watch it and feel, um, emotional because of what the potential of it right like it's it's less about what we have or have not achieved but what we could achieve if we did put our minds to it that's why i mean at least for me i watch it and like i i literally i watched it yesterday and i was like crying at the end and i'm just like anything's possible why aren't we fucking trying uh that that is that is the show right like that that's this episode that is the show in 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 macro um I think that's why it's so possible, why it's so palpable, why it's so emotional is that you watch it and you're just like, this could happen. We're, we're not doing it, but it could happen. Um, yeah. And I think, too, um, you know, the reason why it hits so much is because all of there is when when all of these characters say, I serve at the pleasure of the president, there's the idea that they like this idea that they are there to do good. Their motivation is to do good. Um, They're serving the president and they're serving the people. And I think today the, maybe the unrealistic part of it is that so many people who work in politics 
their motivation is power. Mm-hmm. And so there are competing interests in federal staff. Um, you know, there are people who are there to climb the ladder, so to speak, and not, you don't see that with any of these characters. They're not out for themselves. Like there, you never get the idea that somebody is doing something so that like down the line, they can say they fought for this. So they can say like they fought for something, blah, 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 while they were in the Bartlett administration. And here's why you should elect them. There's no like machinery sort of no ulterior motives. No, I agree. It's, it's, you know, people have often said that, you know, the, the, the Republican party is successful because it thinks about the now there's a, there's a very sort of instant gratification component of it. Um, and that it's, uh, it, it doesn't think about the long term necessarily, whereas the Democrats are always thinking about long term and can't really kind of make fundamental change in in, in the here and now in the same way. Um, it, it it is a it's it's a fascinating sort of the show makes an argument to your point of just it shouldn't be about power; it's about trying to change people's lives for the better while you can. You know, when when you're in power, try to make change. Not I need to constantly be in power. Like that 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 is sort of uh, a, a big issue that this that the show continues to try to sort of hammer home. There's also you know, this show is. It needs to be said that this show is premiering mere months after Clinton is impeached. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 sort of living in the shadow of of that you know unfortunate situation uh it then quickly lives in the shadow of a very contentious election uh that to this day people still feel wasn't that the supreme court handed it to to george w bush and and that they could they should have kept recounting um it's so you have that you have a country that's very split and then just continues to get more and more split and it's exacerbated and we are where we are now um the episode opens with Toby telling Sam to change the lines at the top of the president's speech. Like that's the first thing that he says. And when you hear that, if you've watched the West Wing or if you've watched any Aaron Sorkin, you know that by the end of this cold open, he will not have done so. And that will be the joke that it will come back on itself. Um, but it's still, it's still lovely and wonderful when it does happen. Uh, but essentially, he's, he tells Toby, Toby tells Sam to change the lines because they're not going to be outside anymore. And the opening lines are, I stand, I look before you at this magnificent vista, but they're going to be inside now, so it needs to be changed. Um, <laughs> because it's raining, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I love the sort of, the very end of the cold open is Bartlett turns to CJ and says, CJ, are you taller today? And CJ says, no, sir, I'm my regular height. I don't know why I find it funny, (laughs) but like Martin Sheen's not a tall man. CJ is obviously a tall woman. So it is kind of just, it's just great physical humor. Yeah, no, I love the like walk and talk. I love the, the banter back and forth of like, well, is it raining? No, it's not going to rain today or like. Yes, and then yeah, it like yeah. rains and they're they're like, yeah, well, the weather said it was going to rain. <laughs> yeah, like, it, yeah, yeah. Just the whole I love I love a good I love a good twerk and walk and talk. I love I a good too, yeah. a good banter between all of these characters where like 
Yeah, it's it's basically you've got you've got Bartlett walking with Mrs. Landingham. He's grumpy about his about the food that he's eating and the diet that he has. Mrs. Landingham says that uh, Toby and Sam are running late because they didn't know it was raining. And Bartlett's <laughs> like, "I've only hired the best." And then Toby later says, "In our defense, we did know it was once it was raining once it started." Raining. <laughs> Uh, and he's going to speak to some sort of group of trout fishermen or something along those lines. Like that's something like that. Something like that. And then Bartlett says, couldn't pick a trout out of a police lineup, by the way, which I think is also great. <laughs> um, and then at the very end, you've got Sam and Toby standing behind Leo. Roblo has this look of horror on his face. Toby says, Sam. And then Sam says, I forgot to do something. And then Bartlett says, I look at you. On this yeah. magnificent vista, and then it goes to. I mean, it's just it's it's perfect. It's it's. Wonderful. And because Sam's whole wasn't Sam's whole reason for not changing it, where he was like, "The president's a smart man; he can think on his feet." <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, speaking of other funny sort of runners in this episode, we have a lot of Margaret. Margaret doesn't generally get a ton of screen time, but Margaret is, and I I love Margaret. She's oh, Margaret. Leo's assistant. Um. So, so Margaret goes on this rant about how she sent an email about the the caloric uh, count inside the raisin muffins, and it got she sent it to a bunch of people, and then it kind of created she created spam essentially. She didn't know that yeah. she was doing it, but she created this massive amount of spam. Uh, and she goes on this whole rant, and then Leo says, "Margaret, I have to stop you. I hung in there as long as I could. Uh, it's just great." To see Margaret be like Margaret dialed up to eleven in this episode. Yeah, yeah, because it was like a reply. Somebody like replied all, and it causes chaos. <laughs> yes. I love when Leo's like, and if you, he's like, you lost, he's like, you lost me. And if you want to know the point at which you lost me, it was around <laughs> here. It was around raisin muffin. Yeah, that was when you lost me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, it, it, speaking of the direction of this episode, I, I think you know. Th- there's a lot of like lightning effects going on because it's raining and it's thunder and there's storms outside. Uh, the lightning effects uh, is are beautiful. Uh, they really punctuate some of these scenes and 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 you can see it in this particular scene between um, Josh and Leo as they're talking about the FEC appointments that they want to put in, into the into the into the positions. Um, it's a uh, it's it's really great stuff. Um, I, I want to talk for a second about Josh and Donna. Because Josh sends Donna off to do a bunch of research on English as a second language. Or, sorry, English as as a primary language. My apologies. Um, And so she writes this, like, memo for him. She gives it to him, and then he snaps at her. And she, like, gets really upset with him and says, don't snap at me, Josh. Like, read the fucking memo. And I kind of wanted to be like, Donna, he barely snapped at you. Like, he barely said anything. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's what it is. Um, Mandy and Josh have a great scene together where she tells him that they shouldn't appoint these people to the FEC because it looks bad for a PR on a PR level, blah, blah, blah. Um, And there's a really kind of heartbreaking moment where Josh says to Mandy, he's not going to do it. And Mandy says, why not? And he says, because that's not what we do. And they really kind of sit in that moment for a second that the the look on on Bradley Whitford's face, the resignation of the fact that like, what are they doing? They're a year into this administration and they haven't accomplished anything. And like that, that, that I can only imagine <laughs> that that has to be a pretty depressing situation in the White House. 
Yeah. And I think, again, like, I think, again, that goes back to the realism of the show in that it, it does show that they were trying to compromise too much or they were focused on um, how they were polling and their approval ratings. And it's almost like once you get an office, your, your focus switches pretty quickly to campaigning for re-election. Yeah. So like, I like the idea that by the end of the episode, they're running with the idea of, okay, this isn't working for us. Mm-hmm. Maybe, so what, maybe we get one term, but we're going to like ball, go balls to the walls with that one term and do what we can. Yeah. It's, it's, it, to piggyback on that, there's two things. The first is Toby meets with Leo talks about their polling numbers, which have dropped five points in a week, which is pretty staggering. And Leo's like, we didn't even do anything last week. <laughs> and he's like, I know. Uh, and Toby says, it's not the ones we lose, it's the ones we don't suit up for, um, which I think is obviously speaks to what you're saying. But then it's also Bartlett saying, this is more important than re-election. And, and I really do feel like um, no one fucking says that in DC, right? Like no one says no. that in Washington. Um that idea of, I mean, I remember, and I'm curious about your thoughts, you know, when, when, when Biden was running, there was a lot of sort of, oh, it'll be one term and he'll hand it, he's going to hand it over to, uh, to Kamala in the second term and who, whatever. But, but there is this idea of if I was Joe Biden and I was as old as I, as he is, right, he's doing everything he can, I think, for all intents and purposes to try to, you know, institute real change. But like, don't worry about re-election. Like, just do everything you can while you're in power to to do good and hope that that gets you re-elected. Like, I don't know. The idea that you do anything with these notions of trying to extend your power is just hopeless and sad. But anyway. Yeah. And I think I think especially like trying to extend your power by way of compromising with yeah. people who clearly never like they have never compromise with like rarely compromise with democrats like it's it's like um when people say like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results that's what i think every time (laughs) i see people talk about like by like we're trying to do by like we're on a quest for bipartisanship i'm like that ship has sailed like a long fucking time ago ago. it's not coming back so yeah, do what you can now yep. with the power that you have now. Stop trying to win people who you're never going to win. No, I agree. It's it's it is fascinating to sort of see the to look at the political spectrum right now and to see people like Joe Manchin thinking that there's some sort of way for us to. You're just like what. Well, I, okay, sure. We could just keep doing sure. this, I guess. We could keep, it's to your point, like the Democrats are insane if they think that they could keep doing the same shit over and over again and, and expect any sort of a different result. It's, it's, it's baffling. It really is. Um, yeah. It's the, the, the unfortunate thing is that if the Democrats do start acting like Republicans, I'm not sure that we're anywhere. So then it's, no. it's, it's all bad. It's all bad. It's all um, bad. It's all bad. It's but, all bad. Um, there is but, no healing this nation at this point. Yeah, it, it's 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 really, um, 
I, I'd be lying if I said that between Trump and the pandemic that I haven't that that we haven't seen the real America, you know, that we haven't been exposed to something uh, uh, pretty disheartening when when you need to be paid to get a vaccine. I, I don't know where we are. Um, it's it's uh, and people won't even take the money either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like but you can't even incentivize people with thousands of dollars to get a vaccine it's, it's cars baffling. and houses and it's it's nuts it's vacations nuts. like what yep it's crazy um so at the end of these episodes i have been asking my guests to name a couple favorite episodes do you have a couple that that jump out at you that have stayed with you over the years um i mean this one sure is definitely a favorite um the two cathedrals obviously like i feel like you you have to be a monster if you don't need two cathedrals right. one of the all-time right. best yep. um and then the one i don't remember the name of it it's mm-hmm. the but i specifically remember and i think about it all the time the one i love the abby gardner years um sure, the one sure, sure. where she the first lady and cj are at like a yep. a ball or something and they get drunk. Dead Irish writers. Yeah, it's it's Abby's yes. birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. I I don't know it's, why. I, I love it so much. Yeah. I love it so much. That scene with them is so great. Yeah. She's like, "Let's get Claudia Jean, let's get drunk." <laughs> it's it's a I I love it too and I love it because uh it's very rare that you see all of the female characters in a room together. So Dead Irish Writers, uh, we have Abby, CJ, Donna, Amy together, proving that Aaron Sorkin is capable of writing female characters. Uh, he just, I guess, chooses not to. I feel like it's, um, he has to feel like it. <laughs> um, and he has to really like the characters, which is frustrating in some ways. But then at the same time, I think about it from a writer's perspective and I'm like, oh, I guess... I guess it makes sense. Like it is hard to fully flesh out and really fully form a character that you don't have any sort of feelings for. Yeah. No, sure. I, 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 yeah, I I think that, I think what you're also tapping into as well is, and it's why I think we, we love the scene so much is that, you know, we're, we're midway through season three by that point. So as audience members and as writers, you're, you're invested in these characters in a way that, you know, uh, you weren't say in season one. Um, so that, that history that we're bringing to it, that baggage, if you will, um, and it's why that scene is so, one of the things that's so powerful about that scene is that Donna calls out Abby and says like, you were a doctor when you gave him the shots. Like it's not, you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a great moment. It's a great moment because it's the moment that Abby recognizes that she has to, you know, um, relinquish her doctor's license for, for the remainder of, of the Bartlett administration. And, and, uh, it's really great. It's a great scene. Um, it's a great episode. It also has uh, the Canadian stuff. And as a Canadian, I, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Donna becoming a Canadian for an episode because of uh, border changes, um, which I think is uh, it's just great. It's great stuff. Um, was there, So there was, th- those were the three episodes that jump out at you? Um, yeah. I mean, there are others that tidbits of them live like in my brain rent free. Like I think about John Goodman in the the episode where 
um, the 25th Amendment. <laughs> I mean, it was like what you're saying is like not important. It's, it, it, it is like it's punctuating and saying, Carrie, let's just Carrie, be quiet. Maybe Carrie, like what are you talking about? Maybe don't. All right, it's yeah, back it's again. Like, um, <sighs> no, that episode just like stood out to me because it was like. Why are you afraid you're going to be kidnapped? Is there something that, I, that I happens? No, I, I think it's, I, I have thought that it might have been because like I was a very, at a very impressionable age when the Elizabeth right. smart shit happened. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I and that. that was like, that was technically like completely. Cause for so long, my parents would be like, you're not the child of someone important. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> That's an like, amazing oh. thing for a parent to say. <laughs> they were like the only kids who get kidnapped or like. That's so celebrity. <laughs> Like trying to, I know they were trying uh, to like make me not scared, mm-hmm. but like, so of course I see this episode and I'm like, right. I could even go to college and I'll get kidnapped. <laughs> what I love is that your parents made it about them. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're not important enough Classic. for this to have an effect on you. Yeah. It was the same thing where I was always afraid people would break into our house. Like it's, it's long been like a phobia of mine, security. Uh, and my parents would always be like, our house isn't nice enough for anyone to move on. <laughs> They'd be like, there are nicer houses on this street That's if fantastic. someone wants to rob a house. That's fantastic. Uh, so I, mean, I want, gotta I, love them for perspective. No, absolutely. Keeping you grounded. Keeping you, you know... <laughs> um, I, one last question uh, before I let you go. What are your thoughts on a revival for The West Wing? Is that something you want or are you happy with the way that the show resolved itself? I am happy with the way it resolved itself. I like, you know, small little reunions or so. Like I loved the the staged sort of reading that they yeah, did yeah. for HBO. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that, that reunions are one thing, revivals are another. Yeah. I, I think a reunion can be a really lovely stroll down memory lane. Uh, I don't know that, that the Friends or the Fresh Prince one did that as effectively as maybe they could have. But um, the revival thing, I think, is... Emily Nussbaum said something very astute when I asked her about the Sex and the City revival, which we're imminently going to, I guess, get. And she's like, it's like Pet Cemetery; They never come back right. And I think that there's something to that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I yeah. don't know that we need a West Wing one, but more than anything, I want to thank you so much for being here, Carrie, for your patience with our technical difficulties, but also just this was a blast, and I hope that you'll come back for a movie or a TV show in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always a blast. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. 
Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.